Hello, this is Ruslan Malinovsky. Hello, this is Roman Yeremchuk. Hello, I'm Sergey Rebro. And you're listening to Ukraine Post Football. Welcome to another episode of Ukraine Plus Football. We've got it all this week. Five all draws, pushing refs, Russia, Belarus, player bans. So strap yourselves in and enjoy the ride. Yeah, it's great to be here, Andrew. Been a very interesting weekend across the leagues, but looking at the Premier League now, first of all, I mean, is the title all wrapped up after the results? What do you reckon, Andrew? I think a lot of people might think it is. What's quite interesting is the fact that Zoria pulled off, I don't know whether you could call it a shock, but pulled off a win against Dnipro 1. Relatively comfortable victory, um, albeit Dnipro 1 had loads of chances uh, in this game, and especially Dovbik, and just couldn't put it away for whatever reason. And once again, Dnipro 1 been let down by their goalkeepers. Walef wasn't in goal uh, this week. It was um, the other one, Rebak or however he, however else he's called. And he probably should have done better for the Rusin goal and also for the Guerrero one as well. And honestly, you, you think about it and think if they had a competent keeper, someone with maybe some UPL experience or something this season, how many goals would they not have conceded mm-hmm. as a result of it? And well, it could cost them the title now. As of recording, it's still pretty close. Shakhtar have gone seven points clear, but I think we need all we need to caveat that there is still uh, Dnipro one have a game in hand on Shakhtar, and that game in hand, as far as I'm aware, is the Alexandria game that had like that started back just before the winter break, and they've still not agreed on a date to replay. I think the final 65 minutes of that match. Um, so, and obviously we're, we're ticking down towards the end of the season now. When that's going to happen, hopefully that will be reviewed and resolved soon, but they have to find a date for that. And as a result of it, that's currently their sort of game in hand on on Shakhtar. And then I think Dmitro mentioned it when he was on in the last episode, Shakhtar and Dnipro 1 meet on the penultimate weekend of the UPL. So it's all going to be going down in that in that final sort of week or so. And I'm hoping that there is still going to be some intrigue once we get to that <laughs> game, because I think the match before that is Shakhtar against Zoria. So it's all really going to be piling on relatively interestingly towards the end of that campaign. And um, hopefully it'll still be delicately poised. But as I say, it's all really down to Dnipro to keep up pace with Shakhtar now. They beat Shakhtar back just before the end of the winter break. And, you know, they've had a few of these draws and poor results of late. And this has meant that Shakhtar have been able to sort of pounce on them. Shakhtar, over the past week, played Lviv twice. Could you get an easier, better opponent to face? Ironically, Lviv a lot better than you would have expected <laughs> with, under Bismantli. Needed a 95th minute winner from Kelsey um, last midweek to, to see them off. And then a Bondarenko brace, which, you know, far from anything spectacular, has seen Shakhtar sort of comfortably be sitting at the top. And now they can sort of like focus on those remaining matches and try and see out the season. But how it's going to unfold over the next few weeks, because we know the the UPL has been really unpredictable this year. I'm really, I'm really perplexed and interested to see. I mean, obviously we were talking about this uh, before, before recording. You mentioned the start of the season, checked out, you know, four quality wingers in, in, in the squad. Now, Nothing. This is 
they seem to be just in the, at the moment in the process of grinding out results. So when we talk about seven points clear with the game in hand, and obviously the, the Nipro game plus each need coming up, Zarya still to be to play as well. There's potential for it to turn around, but uh, hey, Andrew, I'm how you you've watched Shakhtar a lot more than me this year. This isn't. A classic team, especially since the departure of Modric. Would you agree with me there? Yeah, I guess it's more to do with the fact of the quality of, of opposition, uh, I guess. I mean, we've seen a few goal fests early on after the winter break. And we've seen these sort of two matches coming in against Lviv, where Shakhtar haven't been at full strength. Uh, Dmitro Kriskiv has had got quite a bad um, ankle injury, ankle ligaments, as far as I'm aware. So he's out for the season, for the remainder of the season, and most likely Euro, uh, the under-21 Euros, which is obviously a big miss. Zubkov, obviously he's been out with a hamstring injury for a while, and that's why he missed Ukraine's international break uh, in March. He's apparently meant to be back in a week or so. Um Shred, he's been not in the team really since his injury, even though he's had a little bit of a comeback, scored a goal against Kirvbas a few weeks ago. And then he's sort of like coming on for these sub spells and all that kind of thing. So I think he's still struggling with his uh, rehabilitation with regards to that. And Toyarov, the Tajik uh, winger, he made his debut in the dying embers of this uh, Lviv game. I mean, we'll see what he's got to offer, but I guess nothing stand out from the remaining few minutes that he had to play in the Lviv match. And coming up, we've got uh, obviously the Klasichna uh, next mm. week. And uh, we've been talking about a potential, I don't know, spike or thorn that could trip up Shakhtar in this sort of run-in. Uh, I guess this was probably ahead of those Zorian and Pro one games right at the end of the campaign. This is probably the biggest game that they've got until then. But you look at Dynamo drawing with Ruch, and Ruch have been pretty poor this campaign. Luchescu's been having health problems and everything else in the background. And you're like, is this sort of like the least anticipated Klasichner? Like, maybe not in history, but in recent history at, at the very least, because Dynamo 12 points off Shakhtar, seemingly like their season, most likely they're going to finish in in fourth it, as, as we continue, because Zoria, if they can be getting wins against the likes of Dnipro 1, they'll probably continue pulling things out of the bag um, and finishing off there, or even at least challenging for second if they can keep it up. But I mean, they're they're a bit adrift of of Dnipro one as well. So it, it's exciting for the grand scheme of things in terms of if Dynamo somehow can get a, a win or a draw, then it will sort of make it a bit more even for that for that title race. But other than that, you feel that because Shakhtar are kind of out of Europe now. Maybe it's not the formalities, but whilst they're playing these sort of bottom half clubs, the motivation, the energy resources as well, just because after, you know, quite a heavy season playing in Europe and elsewhere with all these injuries and everything that they've been doing, whether they just would really like this season to be over as soon as possible, um, just so they can regroup and possibly start with a bit more certainty mm -hmm. ahead of the next campaign because I'm sure we'll be seeing a few exits this summer from Shakhtar and then I'm sure they've got a number of targets that should be coming in for example Daniel Castillo um, Ecuadorian cent central defensive midfielder who's going to be coming in uh, under 18 under 19 player plays for Ecuador under 20s I think he's quite highly rated uh, in South America. So we'll, we'll see what happens um, with him. He, I think, should be joining at some point soon because his uh, Ecuadorian club has released a statement saying that he's already travelled to 
Moldova to do a medical. And once he's completed that, then he should be able to sign. But obviously he won't be joining until, I guess, the new season. And then there's also been another player that's been caught on TV cameras and celebrating with the players, completely un unbeknownst to who he is. But he looks like potentially a new signing of some kind. Who knows? <laughs> who knows when when he when he's maybe he's on trial? No idea. But there's currently sort of no information as to who he is. But he's been photographed um, both by TV cameras and also Kevin Kelsey took the camera after the Lviv win and started taking snaps of everyone in the team in the huddle. And that sort of unknown persona was there again. And it's not Castillo because I've checked the photos and all that kind of stuff. And it's definitely not him. We've seen some terrible classicians in recent times. All we can hope for is some actual entertainment on the pitch. And fingers crossed we might get it because of the sort of state of both sides at the moment. And, just going back to Dynamo before we before we sort of move on. Uh Luchescu is actually scapegoating Dennis Harmash for, for their one all draw <laughs> against uh Rook saying, listen, this guy's 32, he's not training as heavily as some of the 19-year-olds, and he needs to put the effort in, in training. And it's like maybe fair, but to single him out for all the other issues that Dynamo have been sort of dealing with this year with just terrible tactical decisions, weird, weird personnel choices and all that kind of stuff. I think a lot of it actually is probably down to Lucheski, but hey ho, he he just doesn't want to sort of let go, whether we'll see that in the summer or not. But he keeps on saying, Yeah, I'm ill or I need an operation, all that, but I cannot leave this club or cannot leave this side and all this kind of stuff. So let's see how long that, that can be kept up for. It's certainly going to be an interesting week in the run-up, as always in the run-up to Eklasichny. There's always going to be something happening. But, I mean, Ray, first of all, good evening. Now, whenever there's a little historical context, you've got a lot of detail here. So is there a Eklasichny more or less exciting than this one in the run-up that you can remember in recent history? Hi guys, hi Adam. I mean, uh, we've talked quite a bit about Dynamo already. Uh, thank you, Andrew, but gosh, this club doesn't deserve that, really. By far, not the, that season, not the any previous seasons, but I mean, just because Dynamo is uh, out of the top three positions doesn't mean that the title is wrapped up. And this season is still going on. I mean, Napoli is leading in Serie A in like, what, 15 points? And there's like five uh, games till the end. And no one says that they are the champions yet. Same here. I mean, we cannot tell who champion is. Definitely not any of the um, Kiev or uh, teams from t cities like Dnipro. That's that's true. The thing is, as I said previously, is between Lugansk and Donetsk, the two cities of Ukraine, which have uh, some history. You know, who, who, the cities which mean the most these days for Ukrainians. And that's some quite symbolic. And I want that to finish that way. I want them to be golden, silver um, uh, contenders for that season. Because they did the same thing two years ago after COVID, remember? Zoria just unbeknownst to us, but they let it go in the last moment. And they just let Dynamo get the silverware uh, in 2020. We're going to talk about seasons more in a bit. But... If you talk about, after what I just said, it's obvious that recent Klasichny's after uh, 2021, when Dynamo got the championship uh, last time, they just stopped being entertaining. It just st stopped being personal. The last Klasichny which we enjoyed was probably the rainy one when Klochesko first came and put on the towel on his head and uh, Gerson uh, scoring this wonderful goal, Panenka over Piatov in the heavy rain. That was lovely. I mean, that's just forever, like in the memories. But since then, no. Before Luchescu in before the first season of Luchescu in Dynamo, and after that, we didn't have good Klasichnys. They didn't they never meant anything. Like apart from that particular year when Luchescu first came, because it was personal. Now it's just Dynamo is just a middle mid-table club. They're, they're not a top club. They have history, but they, they are playing in conference league. It's a huge mess. And it uh, doesn't matter who is the scapegoat or not. The club is in turmoil. 
And we are we need to talk about the mid-table uh, clashes, uh, which actually appearing to be interesting now, since Alexandria has only three points advantage from Colos, and they might as well join the Conference League next season, or Kripas, or even Warsclaw, right from up from the ashes again, you know, <laughs> whom I don't believe in. But and also the uh, relegation battle is still going on. Nine from teams from nine to fifteen still have only six points difference, so it's a big one. And um, whoever finishes uh, in the in one of these positions is a mystery, and that makes it the most unpredictable season so far. Now, yeah, Ray, as you said, relegation battle does deserve some attention at the moment, and it's it's been. Really great watching. And Metalist and Veris stepped up to open this match day and scored more goals in that game than we saw in all of the other games over the weekend. With a fantastic 5-5 draw down in Ushgorod in some very interesting weather conditions, I have to say. But there were some really great goals scored during that match as well. Was some dodgy defending, but I've got to give credit to some of the good football being played there. Um, it had to be, it had to be Veres. It had to be that cinematic Netflix story for the historical match of the season. I mean, we still might have some uh, of the good matches left in uh, in the end of this, this that season, but for sure, this is this has made history books. And one thing to point out, Blisnichenko, who we mentioned before, scored two goals and assisted two. And the guy with the lips tattoo on his neck had some hard time in Europe. I mean, he was proclaimed new Konoplanka back in the day. And he came back to Veres to rise from the ashes. You know, it's like a Brendan Fraser story <laughs> in, in the Oscars. And he did. You know, he's not a mummy anymore. He, is, he has established himself, albeit in these conditions, in this uh, particular scenario when Veres is fighting for uh, uh, the um, staying in the league. But he's back, and that's great to see. Uh, we don't know how where is going to finish. They are 13th right now, and they actually matched with uh, Ruch uh, in the positions for uh, playoff matches to, to stay in the league or go down. Uh, that's a particular match. Also brought us a goal from Bredun, the Metal East. Um, I think the guy who might leave Metal East after the season. But I tell you what, for a, for a team who is surviving... Till the end of the season, Metalist looked <laughs> quite um, persuasive in terms of their game. You know, they don't seem like a, uh, they're going to be taken down easily. Um, definitely a record breaker in terms of uh, one of the record breakers, obviously, 10 goals. And that's the maximum ever scored in a UPL game. Uh, the last I remember was uh, Dynamo um, Mariupol 9-1, 10 years, 15 years ago. I think there have been about yeah. six matches that have had 10 goals, but this is the highest ever scoring draw. I would, We would never expect that match in this season, right? Yeah. We've been talking about the, uh, the decline of the class in the teams and all that. The relegation battle is more interesting than the champions battle, but wow. Well, it's still very close down there, isn't it? Metalist, Rook, uh, Trona Moritz, Veres. Who else is, I mean... Vorskola, Metalist, nineteen twenty-five. But I was going to say FC Lviv. They look like they're on the way out. I'm obviously playing Shakhtar twice this week hasn't helped help their cause, but they seem to be about two games adrift of of the rest. They need to to win two or three games back to back before they're they're back in with a fighting chance of of staying up this year. But yeah, it's so so tight down there at the bottom and. The great thing is each week it seems to seems to change. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago we spoke about nine teams a bit still being involved, or is it eleven teams, right? And Colos Krivbas seem to have just put a little gap and and created a mid table, but below that everyone else seems to be in with a realistic chance of dropping down. Lviv looks to be way off it, to be honest. Uh they had those tight games with Lviv, with Shakhtar, but you know they're going to be finding it difficult. Baruch, they can pull out some results like they did against Dynamo, but I don't know. They're really struggling to sort of get any momentum in terms of wins and everything that's going on. 
I mean, it's going to be interesting, to say the very least, <laughs> from the top title race, fingers crossed, but also this one, because like you said, it's literally just a revolving door every every week, the same as mm -hmm. maybe the Premier League uh, yeah. in England's relegation battle at the moment, where <clears throat> literally every game during a match day, someone's leapfrogging someone else, and it's all sort of very, very close. And... I mean, just with the way that everyone's been playing and how tight it is, and maybe because the quality of the teams has maybe not dropped, but it sort of equaled itself uh, amongst the different sides where everyone maybe doesn't have that competitive edge or it doesn't have that superstar in their team anymore. They've they've got to try and do something. And I mean... Uh, I'm sure the likes of Veres and Metalis will be trying to battle it out until the very end, but um, we've got four relegation spots per se, two automatic, two playoff, and with the kind of calibre of teams in the Perschelika as well, you know, it'll be, it'll be very exciting to see how it all pans out. <clears throat> it's worth mentioning that the Dark Arts are allegedly at play already. Then this week's midweek fixture, we saw Inhulet's play Ruch. Obviously, both of them relegation threatened. Inhulet's won 1-0, thanks to a early first-half penalty. But the controversy was all around the fact that the referee, uh, Krivushkin, the one who caused some controversy in Dnipro 1 versus Dinamo, and similarly, the fact that he has he has refereed or officiated over half of Inholetz's games this season or something like that, or a fair chunk. <clears throat> and on top of that, Ruch, UAF and UPL were happy to have VAR at this game in Petrova, as so to speak. But Inholetz actually rejected the idea, so the match had no VAR as a result of that. Um, the penalty, I mean, it wasn't necessarily something dodgy or anything. It probably was a penalty, but, you know, teams are trying to take any sort of fine margins that they can to try and stay up. And, you know, let's have had quite a positive uh, post-winter break so far and probably will be safe come the end of the season, but look, in some serious trouble. And, you know, you can't blame... Um, being relatively frustrated with everything that is happening with the likes of this VAR call um, by Inhulets and you know the fact that they just can get a draw against Dinamo and then end up losing against Inhulets so it's, it's it's all a bit up and there but this will be going down to the very last game of the season I'm pretty sure you'd, you'd have to say and I mean we'll come on to it a little bit later with Ray but Whichever two teams from the Persia end up in the playoffs, I think they would go into those playoffs as favourites to go up, given the amount of money that's been spent in 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 the top half of that league this year. But yeah, moving on, we've got a little discussion, and people at home would love to get your comments on this one as well. Um, we we were having a discussion earlier this week and Ray you had a very curious notion and it, it's it's for to discuss it do you want to explain it a bit more to the listeners yeah thanks Adam probably being 15,000 kilometers away from uh, actual Ukrainian land uh, makes me want to think about what did we have in recent years which we could remember about Ukrainian football and funny enough it turns out that since we started our pod those were the best season ever if you think about it, then we have the post-COVID summer of 2020, when, uh, as I mentioned before, and we've been mentioning all the time, uh, then we had 2021, obviously, Lucesco comeback, dramatic matches, Champions League again for Dinamo, uh, the championship title for Kiev. And obviously, I'm we're not considering 20, 20, 20, 20, sorry, 21, 21-22 season for obvious reasons. It was not finished, but 22-23, the revival of Ukrainian football against all odds. We lost quite a bit of teams in that season, but on the other hand, it's been the most, the narrowest, the straight, the most straightforward, the most, uh, the most 
honest, I would say. The, you know, the real, I don't know how to explain it, but it's the pure Ukrainian football. It might be a drop in class. It might be a comeback to the 90s, which I don't really think it really is because like in 90s, there are plenty of teams and footballers were still fresh out of all that Soviet schools. And now we just have footballers who are just leaving the country, you know, and the ones who stay, they play in the teams like um, Yarut, Vast, the guys coming from the oblast levels to play in professional season in Druga Liga and guys who never played professional like Liverberg are claiming to be in Persia Liga next season. So that's the choir of changes we're talking about. The stadiums being launched by Liverberg and Veres, the academies being, um, you know, preparing the players in FC Chernihiv. The teams uh, swiftly changing their gear from uh, the brand who produces uh, the kit for, for national team of Ukraine to Nike and Jaco and Macron and all that. The amount of agricultural clubs we have, uh, as opposed to the Odnoklasnik, um, as we used to call them before, the guys who are owned by one man, like Akhmetov had Mariupol and Ilichivets and Shakhtar, Kolomoysky had Dnipro Arsenal and Kirbas and uh, Surkis had Hoverla and Dynamo and all that, you know. So this is the season now, or was it the summer 2020 or was it 2021? Which one is the best? That's what I wanted to discuss with you guys, because obviously why I think I personally think we should count from 2020 after COVID, because we lost quite a bit of um, mediocre, meaningless and absolutely crap teams like Olympic Donetsk. Like no one ever cared about these teams. Whatever. Metalurdonetsk, all these teams who were just toys, you know, they don't exist anymore. It's beautiful. If we look at the standings, we have, uh, you remember Veres. We had two Veres's in the last five years. We had Veres, we have Sylviv, and we have another Veres now. How many Karpatis did we have in the last three years <laughs> to begin with? So now we have all this lineup, and it's uh, we're just talking more about relegation battle. For for what I for all I know, more than the title race and the Europa League spots. If we take uh, we don't take PFL obviously PFL we're gonna touch on later, but the UPL season of 2020, 2021, and 2023, which one is the top? Yeah, I would have to argue that it would be this season, mainly just on how tight it is. I mean, it's never been. So in the balance going into the final few match days ever, in my opinion, yes, we've got the gap opening up and all that kind of stuff, but who knows how that's actually going to play out going forward. And I mean, it's actually very, you know, I will draw parallels again to the EPL. It's like really tight on both occasions. Like that, that just shows obviously for different reasons, but it makes it very exciting. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about the relegation battle this year. But mainly because, as you mentioned, Ray, we haven't really had a mid-table uh, as much. Now it looks like we probably do, with Krivbas Kolos and Alexandria going to be battling out there. Ruslan Rotain, by the way, seven games in charge of Alexandria, unbeaten, six <laughs> draws, one win. If he if he continues unbeaten until the end of the season, Wow. What an achievement! Sensational. But anyway, um, yeah, I'm I'm ex I'm excited uh, by this season more than any other. Sadly, I feel the only negative of it all is that there's been no fantasy uh, UPL for me to play, and I've, that would make it even better. <laughs> you know, trying to trying to think of who who to put in every week, but it's made it slightly less stressful. So in in that way, it's been all right. And coincidentally, I've been in. I've been in much better shape in the uh, English Premier League fantasy. So maybe there's a correlation between all of that. But regardless, I prefer it to the other season because, Ray, I don't know. We'll, we'll see in those final match days how the likes of Zoria will be trying to play out for bronze medal or some other rubbish like they did in that season 2020. And it was... That was just so heartbreaking watching that penultimate game or the game before where literally Zoria have got everything to play for. And they it was against Desna, I think. It was like 1-0 or something and they just didn't go for it at all. They, they, they let it slip 
as the classics one yeah. said. They let it slip. And I just mean like what <laughs> that's actually a travesty to be doing that just for the sake of they wanted to guarantee bronze because there was potential that they could slip down to fourth or some rubbish. But you know, what sort of football is that? But this year, I mean the top three are certainly sort of playing like they've got nothing to lose, really. Sorry, ah, really exciting. Dnipro one have got good players and talents. Just certain players in their team aren't to the standard of the rest of the team. And hence, that's the weak point that they've had to deal with. Shakhtar looking tired. Maybe that might place into something as, as the season goes by. And yeah, Dinamo just been the passengers. Minai putting in results. Um, the guys that have had about nine lives in the UPL over the past few years. And this year, I mean, there is still every chance that they could get relegated, but they look to be, you know, they look to have some sort of coherent plan in there finally with a normal manager, uh, maybe not the best squad players, but still something, a manager that can craft things out of them. We had such high hopes at the start of this campaign for Metalist. Uh, Which one? Well, FC, uh, Metalist, <laughs> yeah, any of them, but um, FC in particular. But obviously, as soon as Yaroslavsky's money sort of dried up, per se, um, it's sort of the same old story from 2016 or when they when they folded the last time. And in my opinion, I think this is the most exciting league season uh, of the UPL since... I don't know, 2013, 14, uh, just before uh, Russia obviously invaded Crimea and uh, Donbass, when, you know, the league was competitive every year out. This is sort of the, uh, a real... Fi- funny that, sorry, funny that you mentioned it, Andrew, but remember which spot did Dynamo finish that season? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, there you go. It's, I was uh, going real... to bring that one up myself. <laughs> real parallels, real parallels. Adam, what do you think? No, it was, it's funny you just mentioned that season because obviously, for me, I arrived in Ukraine in 2010. So before that, it was purely from a distance uh, with no real connection to what was going on. Well, after that, it was always, okay, Dinamo or Shakhtar going to win the league. Apart from that, for almost three for me, it felt like a freak season, and it was a great season. Seeing Dnipro and Metalis Kharkiv battling, and Dinamo ending up in fourth spot, it was, it was, it was great to watch. But I have to say, that COVID season, the run into that game, I remember, and for me at this at that time in early twenty twenty. I wasn't watching as much Ukrainian football as I've done since. And I was at my wife's family and I sent them all out, stayed in to watch Zoria in the Olympic Stadium against Dinano. Zoria throw it away and go, I think they were 3-0 down by half-time in that game. But, you know, like you said, afterwards and, you know, we've, Zoria players have mentioned the fact that they were fully aware of they needed the draw in the Desna game and everything that was going on. But it was kind of watching that and seeing it seem so close that tiny Zoria or tiny Desna, two clubs that both of which I've been to by that stage, were on the verge of second spot in Champions League. It it did grab me. Now, at the end of this, this season, this season may overtake it. Well, at the moment, I've got to still stick with the, the COVID season for me. If we were talking about PFL stuff, it'd be a different story, right? Well, you've you've stipulated UPL only, so I'm going to stick with the COVID era. Of course, we have some down uh, downsides, as uh, you guys mentioned, 13-14, uh, but as I said before, that was uh, an illusion because a lot of clubs were dependent on uh, the money from the East, so to speak. And I don't mean Arabic countries. <laughs> and so uh, that was kind of a um, masking what the real state of affair was. That's why so many clubs disappeared after that season. That's because they were just toys and they were just these, um, you know, um, 
hard houses of cards simply put you know and now uh, this season uh, it's, a, it's a huge uh um reload of the matrix or maybe even the resurrection yeah that the resurrection of the matrix i think i <laughs> i mentioned matrix quite a bit when talking about Ukrainian football this particular season but this is the resurrection yeah and we we will be seeing uh we'll be looking forward to next season obviously with the, with the all the teams coming back not all that all of them of course but some of them and it's going to be even more exciting uh but yeah we still need to finish that season to be, to begin with and uh, this season is the one for me now people at home would love to know what you think as well on this one um drop some messages on the twitter or the instagram feeds let us know which season you prefer we yeah, we'd really love to take get your perspective on this one. It was that was for the three of us. None of us mentioned the 2021 stuck out, even though it was Luchescu's redemption, as Ray mentioned earlier on. So Dynamo abroad guys. Let us know what you think there. Um moving on though. A club that is coming to for a little bit of criticism over sort of the last shall we say, 24 months in particular. Plisha Zitjitamir, they, this week, have, have have they got themselves some brownie points, as we would say, Andrew? Well, it's been up for discussion by different people on social media, per se, but I'd say, yeah, I think collectively as a trio of co-hosts on this show, we'd probably say that they've gone the right way about this um, to ensure that I guess both the message is sort of put out for any future similar conduct um, and just the way to react to sort of activity in this, in this light. So for anyone who doesn't know or anyone who hasn't been following, uh, Policia Jutomer uh, are up there in the Padshaliha uh, fighting for promotion to the UPL and, are rather desperate for it because they've got a very wealthy owner. He's putting loads of money and they're very keen to get promoted. And there was an occasion during their 1-0 loss to MFC Metalur, where a female referee, 24 years old, Sofia Prichena, was officiating. There was this in real life or real time, it looked like it was a penalty, a foul that she didn't give. Then once you looked at the replays, it was actually a relatively good decision. Um, when she didn't give it, um, all of the police players ran up to her, sort of encircled her. Um, one player, um, Vadim Chervak, pushed her in the back and she didn't really rise to anything. She kept a cool head and sort of dealt with it extremely professionally and really well um, sent him off and in following sort of lots of public uh, backlash and everything like that I mean I don't know whether that actually influenced it but still um, within sort of one day or two of the game police officially announced that the player's contract had been terminated um, for that conduct he prior to that had officially sort of voiced um, an apology for that. And I have been told by a few people that have played with him or know him, that he is a very nice guy and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was out of character and he's understand what he's done wrong, etc. So he's, he has been, um, he's had his contract terminated, but also the UAF uh, disciplinary and ethics committee on top of obviously his contract being, um, terminated by police he's also got a six month ban from football now so he obviously won't be back until what's that September October time uh, obviously he will be a free agent at that point so he probably can sign for anyone who will want to take him in and I guess a lot of people are saying oh wow it's like oh some people some people have been giving the argument that oh that's a bit over the top um, if he pushed a male ref, he wouldn't have got banned and all that kind of stuff. I feel taking it all into context and with the way that Ukraine wants to be a part of a progressive Europe and progressive world, that this punishment, obviously you feel bad for the player that has been punished so sort of so extremely, you could say, but 
he's been made an example out of. And now you hope that going forward, similar incidents won't occur because they will be deterred by the fact that first they could lose their livelihood or at least temporarily. And then also they're going to get a face lengthy ban out of it. And the only reason he got six months was because he hadn't had any previous um, similar inactions. So if he had been aggressive or some sort of other previous history of uh, dangerous stuff, it could have even been longer. You, you know what I mean? So um, in my opinion, probably the right way forward. And fingers crossed that it sort of sets a a positive precedent in the future that people won't be getting too close to referees and actually respecting them. Albeit, I understand that at some points in the season, it, it's, it has been rather frustrating with with certain um, refereeing decisions. However, you have to understand that this is football and you have to uh, act as a professional in your respect and not start fighting or abusing referees because they are um, in the position that they're in. And a lot of the time, especially if you're a female ref, probably more vulnerable when you're officiating against, you know, 22 athletic males. Very pleased with what Felicia did. And hopefully speaking as an Englishman, the, the EPL sort of wake up and take a similar line. We've seen a, a few incidences in the EPL this year. Uh, Mitrovic is one most recently in the FA Cup game, which I think it was an eight-game eight ban, which, and there's been a lot of criticism of the ban being handed out more than the action. And we're seeing a, a line has certainly been crossed over the last few years in terms of respect towards the referees. And it's hopefully something like this, if it's followed through uh, by other clubs and by federations and the like, we'll start to bring some of the respect back into the game. Sticking to this referee subject, VAR has been quite an interesting topic over the past few weeks as well, where the owner of Policia um, has openly come out and said that he will be purchasing a new VAR machine for UAF or one that will be able to be used <laughs> for his club's matches because of the sort of necessity of getting promoted. So he doesn't want to get any kind of um, second chance decisions and all that kind of stuff with VAR not being there. And LNZ, who are also in the same league, they've similarly done that. I think they've paid for three or four matches of their upcoming run in where VAR will be in it. And sort of they funded that themselves because I think there's only like two or three VAR machines in all of Ukraine and they can only be at certain games. So you have to either fund them yourself and, you know, other things like that. So that's something to certainly keep an eye out on for. Looks like we've got some sort of like um, VAR wars going on between <laughs> different clubs and that kind of thing, which is obviously new in on itself. And um, um, you're going to see English Premier League fans chuckling away at people wanting to have VAR in there. The exactly, <laughs> exactly. And we know that, obviously, I guess VAR can only be as good as the referees that are officiating over it. So with what we've just been discussing, is there even a guarantee that it will be all that helpful? I don't. Ray, here we are. I mean, we might criticise the refs, but isn't there going to be one refereeing in the MLS sometime soon? Yeah, apparently he's already there and he found himself refereeing one of the games in, uh, was it MLS or the National Conference? I guess, yeah, top tier of Ameri of North American football. How about that? And this guy is Sergei Boykov, or as I call him, One-Eyed Devil, because this guy, he <laughs> was one of the few referees uh, who was uh, acclaimed uh, by uh, FIFA and uh, accredited, sorry, by FIFA uh, to be working on international matches. And oh boy, did he referee those. And even if you remember him in Ukraine, I mean, he was probably one of the most notorious referees, always making headlines with his decisions, always being controversial, always being uh, in the spotlight. And now he's in MLS. Good luck to him. Still better than working in the Championship of Crimea. Am I right? Amen to that. Uh, it's 
funny, well, not funny, but yeah, probably ties in nicely that you mentioned that there, Ray. But obviously, the Ukrainian Ministry of Youth and Sport came out with a new order this week, didn't they? And the document goes, it includes five points. And these bullet points are elaborating on extensive measures against uh, propaganda from Russian Federation against Ukraine in the sports community. It prohibits the official delegations of national uh, teams of Ukraine from Olympics, non-Olympics, and Special Olympics uh, sports to take part in any international competition, with, in, which includes Russian and Belarusian athletes. Uh, the departments of Olympic sports, uh, physical culture, non-Olympic types of sports, and all of the uh, same kind, to call off all the delegations uh, in case of uh, taking part in the competition with Russians and Belarusians. In case of the two points above being true, uh, everybody needs to make sure the delegations come back to uh, Ukraine uh, as soon as possible. I recommend all the sports federation of Ukraine to monitor these uh, Russian and Belarusian sportsmen of take, taking part in the uh, competitions to avoid, obviously, taking part in the competition with them and inform the um, authorities and um, all the branches of ministry to constantly monitor the facts of uh, the points above and asking the uh, authorities to um, take away the uh, license and the status of uh, the federation or a sports um, department uh, as being official. So they, if, for example, UAF sends the team to Euros where, God forbid, Belarusia qualifies, we cannot take part. So what do you think about that? Well, from the off, I think this has caused, obviously, large discussion in the Ukrainian sports media and on social media as well. Uh, I joined a Twitter space on Friday um, where Tribuna about five or six of their journalists were discussing this in particular for about two hours uh, and just basically sort of the various interpretations of it. Essentially, what Ray's just read out is a document that was leaked, you could even say, by Jean Belignuk. It wasn't a thing that was like officially posted or anything like that. Uh, that was sent out per se, to all the different sports federations of Ukraine, be that in any kind of sport, fencing, boxing, football, UAF, of course, um, and elsewhere. And it was signed by the vice president of, no, the vice minister of youth and sport, uh, Matvi Bidney, so not even the actual president. And those points that Ray's just mentioned there, so the first one is if there are uh, any... Russian or Belarusian athletes that are taking part under neutral status in any kind of or under open status as Russians or Belarusians um, that Ukrainian athletes or teams aren't allowed to participate in that same competition. They're just banned by the Ukrainian government. And from the very off, the this is something that's not allowed in global sporting competitions where governments are allowed to impact or have influence on sporting things or sporting competitions or sporting federations and the actions that they do per se, because there's meant to be a, a disconnect between the two. So that from the very off is already problematic. Another thing, obviously, is that from the fact that Jean Belignuk shared this, is that no athletes or football or sporting federations have been really spoken to about this by the Ministry of Youth and Sport prior to the announcement of this per se order, which is forcing people to cancel um, participation in various competitions, etc., or, you know, abstinence from them. Obviously, there are countless thousands or hundreds at least of professional athletes that have got to this year take part in qualification campaigns, in particular, you know, in our context, Ukraine, uh, national team for the Euro qualifiers, but also for, um, you know, 
other youth tournaments under 19s under 17s under 21s and all that kind of stuff that all that is all in conjunction with it and one thing that this that that particular point raised was that obviously belarus has not been banned by uefa and belarus aren't even participating as neutrals they're participating as belarus in a different qualifying group and it is very unlikely that they will qualify for the final tournament and also by uefa rules and fifa rules ukraine and belarus are always separated uh, in any draws so that they can't face each other the fact that the very fact that they are in sort of the same competition qualifying for the same sort of end goal does that put ukraine's participation in the tournament at risk and the short answer is that nobody actually knows uaf have come out i think the spokesman for them mentioned to like fan day in an interview said well the ministry for youth and sport can are the ones that decide whether we can leave the country or not to obviously play both home and away games in this qualifying so it will go down to them however they're still UAF is still working with the Ministry of Sport um, to actually find out the actual reasoning and how this is going to end. In my opinion, how this is going to end is that it probably won't have any impact in terms of Ukraine won't be banned from facing, from continuing their qualifying campaign and all that kind of stuff. These sort of five order points are meant to be a catch-all for all sports. But as we know in Ukraine and elsewhere, uh, all sports are more equal than others. Some sports are more equal than others. So some sports will probably be able to get away scot-free. Others might be more impacted by this, you know, in terms of individual athletes. Tennis players in particular, I think, might have a tough rap um, trying to play at somewhere like Wimbledon, for example, where there will be other Russian athletes um, playing. So... It's going to be interesting, but it all seems to be a bit of a mess at the moment. The other thing I, I, I would like to raise is with the decisions made by the organisations like the IOC, are they actually fit for purpose themselves? And should we be directing our anger towards them more and and looking to create bigger boycotts of their organisations than directing the anger internally and still encouraging us to be involved with such organisations. We're going to move on and keep you up to date. PFL has been grabbing some interest, hasn't it, Ray? Special League is going to be extended to 20 teams next season. That's why... We are not sure how the relegated teams are going to be positioned, whether it's going to be Drew Haliha or uh, the extended Persia. So, um, also, if we talk about the next match day, we have some huge games on cards. Uh, that being LNZ against Karpati. And they mm. are third and fourth, respectively. LNZ has 14 points, Karpati has have 12. And in the meantime, Metalur Zaporizhia is going to face Epicenter, and these teams are right behind Karpati, and they have 10 and 9 points respectively. So in case one of these teams wins and Karpati lose to LNZ, then they might as well replace Karpati in fourth position, which is one of the two positions of playoff matches for a promotion. So it's all up for grabs. And of course, the biggest game of next match day is the clash of the titans is the is the david against david of persia liga is the supermarket against the beer it's polisa obolon the new the newly proclaimed third strength third power of ukrainian football polisa Zhitomir, with their var cars with their um uh, headlines what they do with the referees and the way they position themselves with this huge, huge, um, you know, money bag, uh, they are facing Obolon, the team of the 
well, of yours truly, obviously. And it's going to be big. And uh, Obola didn't have a good run of games, to be honest. They have they drew twice. And some people start saying that it's typical Obola football. They uh, let it go against the middle-class teams, and but they beat the Giants. Let's hope it's true. Uh, whilst we've been talking about uh, the champion group for quite a while, uh, in the other group, there is Prokopati and Poltava who are matched in 11 points and they have a clash next uh, match day and they need uh, to move on from the relegation zone of uh, the their group. But again, we're not sure what's happening in that second group. We might need an intel from our friend of the pause, Ila Diulin from UFEA Project to clear us up on that because if the group uh, which everybody watches uh, has some great match days on cards and the other doesn't, then what's the point, right? And that leads us to Drew Haliha, where we have um, Niva Buzova pretty much wrapping up the title of winning the first Drew Haliha after the um, reform of all divisions. Uh, the second one in the league would be Chaika, which is matched with uh, Niva Vinica, 22 points each. And this looks quite promising. And Adam, just before we finish off, you've been over in France uh, this past weekend uh, watching a potential Ukraine national team candidate who <laughs> we have been dubbing maybe in recent months as a Stepanenko replacement. How was uh, Metz versus Bordeaux and how was Ignatenko watch for you? Natenko watch was a damn scrape, but the game was good. I've got to say, um, yeah, I you say it's going to France sounds all, 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 all well and good. It's only a forty-minute train ride from here, um, but yeah, Metz is a, a nice little setup they've got down there, and it was a big day for League Two football, second against fourth. Um, with only the top two going on. I think, uh, I know I get criticised for being overly positive. Now, Natenko, he was signed by Bordeaux as a, when they were a League One club to be, I think, the kind of blocker. You know, he famously was sent off within a minute of his debut uh, last season when he was there on loan. And very, very different to be playing for a club that's battling against better teams to then go into a team that is well, one of the biggest clubs in the league. And um, yeah, I was talking to some Bordeaux fans and they said, you know, we need a we need a new box-to-box player. And Natenka doesn't have a creative pass. He's the guy that stops play, keeps it simple. And he, most of his passes went to the centre-half or to the full-back. And he was just sat there in front of the centre backs, helping them stop play. And when when Bordeaux went down to ten men, it became a much difficult job, and they got deservedly beat three 0 They could have finished five or six in the end of the day. Um, but I would want to see him in League One, and if Bordeaux go up, and they need somebody there who's going to be, you know. I have some friends who are Everton fans, and they talk about the the dog dogs of war days uh, in the in the mid nineties with players like Barry Horn and I suppose Robbie Savage will be another player that comes to mind. He's going to be that sort of player, and if a team needs him, um, he could do a good job. For Zabina, I mean, maybe in games where Zabina's facing first seed in the group of France or where they're going to need somebody like that, he could do a job then. That's the time to call him up. But as a Stepanenko replace, one of the things we like about him is the way he can start play as well as finish play. And yeah, I don't think Natenko's got that in his pocket. It's been a great week, been a great episode as well. Really enjoyed it. Um, hope everyone at home has as well. We'll be back after the Klasichny. I hope it exceeds its billing as the least exciting <laughs> in recent years. But uh, we'll see. We'll all be tuning in next Saturday at 4pm local time. Um, I assume it'll be on YouTube as well as all the other regular feeds. But we won't know until then. And until the next time we're all together, everyone. 
Take care, stay safe, and goodbye for now. Bye-bye. Oh